Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Human Trafficking in Europe. Thank you, everybody, for joining and for, if you are on this side of the world, for waking up that early to join us. Uh, my name is uh, Rogero Scadur and welcome uh, to panel 13B of uh, the OC24 conference. I'm analyst of the Southeast Europe Observatory of the Global Initiative uh, Against Transnational Organized Crime. And today I'm going to be the moderator and also uh, one of the panelists of this session, which is dedicated to exploring uh, various forms of human trafficking uh, that takes place in, in Europe. It is an honor and a great pleasure as well uh, to introduce my fellow panelists here, uh, starting from Jada Volpato. She's a PhD student at Haper Adams University, where uh, she's studying the intersection between um, organized crime groups, modern slavery, and agri-horticultural uh, supply chain. Uh, then Silvia Rodriguez Lopez, lecturer in criminal law at the University of A Coruña in Spain where she recently also presented her PhD thesis on human trafficking-related um, corruption. And Sara Mariela Lambertini, PhD student in social sciences and statistics, uh, the University Federico II of Naples, where she uh, specializes in transnational organized crime and uh, human trafficking uh, uh, nexuses. Um, to give uh, the audience uh, a little bit uh, of knowledge about the rules of this uh, type of session, um, we are going now with the, our presentations. Each uh, panelist will have from eight to 10 minutes to go through his or her presentation. And then in the meantime, um, this is uh, of course for the audience, uh, use uh, the Q&A um, um, box for your questions. And if you have instead thoughts that want to share or comment on anything, please use the chat box. Uh, then, thanks to the help of the Secretariat, then we will uh, collect them and we will try at least to address as many as possible. But given the number of participants, I think um, we, we encourage you to definitely engage as much as possible and make, because this is a um, policy commentary session, so we want to engage in discussion. So it's, it's, a, it's a very participatory uh, discussion. So uh, it is seven past uh, nine or eight, and uh, I would definitely, without further ado, uh, give the floor to Jada. Um, and please um, enlighten us with your presentation. Off you go. And if this, yes, thank you very much for sharing. So, hello. I'm Jada Volpato, and like Ruggiero said, I'm a PhD student at Harper Adams University, where, with the help of Dr. Richard Byrne and Cressida Smith, I'm researching and studying how to tackle modern slavery in the European agri-horticultural supply chains. Uh, we can go to the next slide, please. Thank you. So during my master's dissertation about the reuse of seized and confiscated assets in Italy uh, from uh, organized crime groups, I had the opportunity to interview uh, farmers that work on those lands. And uh, th three things stay with me how in one of the most productive areas uh, for tomato sauce, some farmers wanted to start a gangmaster free labor, uh, but they soon realized that out of the entire region, only literally five or six of them could have uh, actually earned this label. And this is because gangmaster is seen as an essential part of farming uh, in some areas of Italy. Also, 
how farmers were aware the organized crime groups not only control aspects as from whom buy products or sell their goods, but also how organized crime groups control the access to cheap labor that is uh, essential for them. And the third point, uh, complex agro-horticultural supply chain uh, reflect the issue present uh, in Europe. Because between farmers and consumers, um, there is a bottleneck. So we have very few processors and distributors and retailers of food. And that implies uh, less contractual power for farmers. And at the same time, farmers uh, often are not very aware of the steps the beyond the selling their products in the supply chain. So not only they are already constricted in a small area, but also they don't have a vision of the entire supply chain. The next slide, please. So when thinking about how to reduce modern slavery, I identified these three main components, organized crime groups, agricultural supply chain in specific, because it's a, almost a mysterious aspect of agriculture and modern slavery. Uh, the next slide, please. So as per Nicholson et al. in their paper, A Full Freedom, Contemporary Survivors Definition of Slavery, modern slavery uh, does not have a single agreed upon international definition, but it's like an umbrella term that includes, uh, for example, slavery, uh, servitude, human trafficking, and forced labor. However, the term modern slavery is mostly found and used in, in the United Kingdom or Australia, or also in Nigeria, so English-speaking country, while uh, human trafficking, forced labor is uh, more used in uh, the European research. Uh, additionally, uh, this is really interesting, in 2010, the European Court of Human Rights addressed the definition of slavery in the case of Ransev versus Cyprus and uh, Russia. And the court concluded that it was unnecessary to identify whether the treatment about which the applicant complains constitutes slavery, servitude, or force and compulsory labor. So there is clearly a gray area on what term to use and to apply for which situation. And at the same time, uh, we can say the same for uh, organized crime groups. Uh, the main feature in the Italian definition for the Article 416 bis are the hierarchical structure, the use of intimidation, and the possible attempt to uh, obstruct free vote. But as per uh, Gomez, Césped, and Stangeland, in organized crime control policies in Spain, a disorganized criminal policy for organized crime, they point out how the focus on organized crime in Spain is completely, <clears throat> sorry, dominated by the debate on terrorism, while the United Nations, again, use a definition that functions as an umbrella term, uh, where the major elements considered are the degree of participation, the number of people involved, and the intention to participate and or the degree of actual participation. This is because uh, mostly in Europe, we consider our organized crime group, a group of three or more people, but for example, in the Russian legislation, we found 40 or more people. So it's more like a syndicate, like a, a highly level of organization for the Russia legislation, while in Europe, only three people can constitute organized crime groups. So the difference can be explained because of the different legislations, but why do we have different legislations? Because we have different organized crime groups in different territories, and so 
they have cultural and economic implications in each territory. Again, we found ourselves with the not homogeneous views. And regarding laws against labor exploitation, as per Cavana and all, the paper securing the prohibition of labor exploitation in law and practice, Spain prohibits uh, trafficking in human beings while it does not provide and envisage a crime of slavery uh, unless it occurs within a widespread and systematic attack against the civil population. So we have different names and different names mean slightly different definition, which mean different policy focus and consequently different policies enacted. So if we can pass to the next slide, please. Um, as a European community, our agriculture supply chain is extremely interdependent. So my question is what uniform European policy can be enacted to address agricultural supply chain vulnerabilities to force labor and organized crime? If we can pass to the next one, please. Thank you. So in order to do so, I'm focusing on three countries, Italy, um, Spain and the United Kingdom. Those three countries have been chosen because of their different import and export ratio, the different migration and temporary labor um, flows, and the established uh, presence of gang mastering. But how are they different and how are they the same? What can we learn from these comparisons? It's also really interesting to note that the United Kingdom have a modern slavery act from 2015. Italy addressed the gangmaster problem with a specific law, and Spain also addressed the problem, but with several laws. So the presence of modern slavery, or like a most precisely forced labor in agriculture, is established, but try to combat, try to fight in different ways. So it's really important to establish a, a way to count the, the problem, to measure the problem. So if we can pass to the next, next slide, please. Thank you. So the end goal of this uh, development uh, of a supranational uh, toolkit that highlights issues found during research and gives uh, policy suggestions for improvement. Um, I didn't present any data in this presentation because of, um, of COVID, I didn't manage to travel yet. And uh, what I want to do is to interview farmers and small farmers in a remote area. That's my goal because I found them more connected to the territory. And uh, because of that, I could not uh, met them in person. And I, if I try to contact them uh, with uh, a meeting or through email, what I receive is a no, I don't know you. I cannot trust you, or I've already been interviewed. So I just recently received a note from a, from a farmer that comes from the north of Africa and lives in Andalusia. And he told me, no, I, I don't want to meet you or have an interview with you because uh, I've been interviewed by several uh, researchers uh, or people from other institutions and uh, nothing changes. So. Um, because of this reason, I don't have any data in this presentation, and I'm actually trying to find a new methodology to approach this problem and in order to collect um, data that can actually have a reflection on the uh, problems on the territory. So if we can uh, go to the next slide. So thank you very much for listening.
Thank you very much, Jada. Um, I have already uh, collected a few questions for you, but I also, of course, this uh, said before, for those who have just joined, um, we are collecting uh, questions and we want to ask them to the panelists at the very end of the, all the presentations. Um, so I will then pass to uh, my uh, presentation. Um, yes, thank you very much. So uh, Modern Slavery uh, Made in Italy is the title uh, of a paper that I have recently published for the Journal of Illicit Economies and Development. Um, and that explores not only the various <clears throat> forms of uh, labor exploitation that occur in the Italian agricultural sector, but also attempts to define, in a way, its uh, enablers, and uh, at the end suggests to um, some sort of like possible human rights-based um, approaches and solutions to the phenomenon. So first of all, I thought it would be good to give an understanding of the importance of the Italian agricultural sector and its relevance also at the European you know, level. Um, to give you some data, the annual value uh, of agricultural production in Italy stands at around 57.8 uh, billion uh, euro. And in a cross-country comparison, Italy ranks third uh, among its main EU partners, so after uh, France and Germany, but before uh, Spain. And um, it actually, in terms of added value, ranks uh, first in, uh, in 2020, according to data elaborated by Eurostat for uh, 2020. With regards instead to, instead to employment, uh, according to most recent estimates, there are roughly 1,060,000 uh, agricultural workers in, in Italy. And more importantly, 90% uh, of this uh, 1 million plus of the uh, workforce uh, is seasonal, is short term. And out of this, uh, in absolute term, it's around 400,000, so pretty much 48% are migrant workers that come from more than 120 uh, countries, but mainly from uh, Romania, Morocco, uh, South Asia, so India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan, <clears throat> Albania, Poland, Bulgaria, and, uh, and Tunisia. Uh, now, according to data, which is elaborated by the Osservatorio Placido Rizzotto, which is an observatory of uh, one of the biggest Italian trade union, the CGIL, there are around uh, 100,000 migrants uh, farm workers in Italy that are high within caporalato uh, schemes and they are subjects to forms of uh, labor exploitation that vary uh, from uh, inadequate housing um, when, of course, in relation to, to the work in the fields, to lack of access to potable water and extremely long uh, working shifts, so up to 12, 13 hours with no breaks uh, whatsoever. But then the question is, what is uh, caporalato? Well, it is just uh, the, the, the Italian term uh, for an exploitative system that of recruitment practices that uh, disproportionately uh, affect migrant workers and which often lead to forced and bonded uh, labor, labor situations. However, in Italy, instead of the caporalato phenomenon and, and labor exploitation in general, instead of being included uh, in the human trafficking uh, discourse, it's been traditionally uh, associated by law enforcement authorities, local courts, judges, but also in general, the media, I would say, the, the, the general narrative on the topic with the presence of organized crime in the territory. However, as you can see in the map where I have uh, tried to, to place uh, different cases that have been uh, prosecuted since 2016, 166 cases of uh, forced labor in, uh, in agriculture, um, as you can see, and also here I've tried to, to also uh, include the major, uh, the areas of origin and major influence of uh, Italian traditional organized crime groups. 
the phenomenon of uh, illegal recruitment is rather widespread uh, widespread across the country um, and as not i would argue at least not direct association with uh, traditional italian mafia uh, presence and, and, and practices uh, in in this phenomenon in fact there are roughly 25% of uh, small and medium sized enterprises mostly the in agricultural sector that benefit from illegal recruitment uh, practices and in absolute terms we're talking about 30,000 companies that use uh, such uh, such services um so here i have tried to uh, summarize some of the many uh, of course there's many many more enablers of the of the phenomenon of the uh, such illegal and uh, illegal recruitment uh, practices in a sort of like supply and uh, and demand uh, and demands uh, framework on the supply side here i put the wage differentials between italy and low income countries of migrant origins so in uh, for some migrants, especially those that benefit from a rather high degree of freedom of movement, so I'm referring here to migrants coming mostly from Romania, Bulgaria, and Poland, so a member of the European Union, um, it is still perceived at least to be very attractive. It is to, to be it is attractive to still come to Italy, accumulate as much money as possible, being exposed to um, forced labor, or at least uh, labor exploitation, and but at least accumulate as much money as possible and then uh, go back to their own country because of course you're talking about seasonal work where they can still enjoy a rather higher um, purchasing power then another uh, uh, attractive uh, factor i would say is represented by this low uh, bureaucratic uh, process to obtaining visas and working permits in italy uh, italy has to be understood that is a very the public sector is very slow uh, in, in in guaranteeing and uh, in, in granting uh, visas so this leads migrants in a way to live in a sort of limbo where they cannot really find a legit source of income this applies mostly also to migrants that are uh, been staying in italy already for a long while india mostly uh, pakistan bangladesh and that in a way uh, rely on the informal networks to guarantee some sort of, of income because going to the police and, and exposing um, certain practices so illegal recruitment would then actually put themselves at risk uh, of, uh, of expulsion and then here i wanted to also put geographical proximity this of course apply only to certain migrants for example balkan peninsula uh, migrants coming from albania or depending of course on the side of Italy, also North Africa, mostly Tunisians uh, arriving to Sicily, it is rather easy to access uh, also for geographical proximity to the Italian territory. Regarding the other side, so the demand side, uh, there are many more factors as just these three. I just here try to be as, very brief, as, as brief as possible. Uh, the big prevalence definitely of small and medium-sized enterprises with very low mechanizations levels in a way um, require high levels of manpower. Italians uh, see uh, working, of course, in agriculture sector as a non-remunerative and, and very heavy job. So, and they tend not to work in anymore, at least in the in the agricultural sector. So, and this gap, in a way, is uh, filled by migrant workforce. Then another item here is the um, the presence of a bio-driven agri-food agri uh, supply chain. In here, I wanted to simply um, highlight the fact that most times small and medium-sized enterprises are left with very uh, small margins of maneuver when it comes to, 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 to 
profit. Uh, this is definitely not a, a justification to lower wages and to exploit to exploit um, workers, but it's definitely a contributory factor. And then I also wanted to put some sort of like historical perspective regarding the history of of informal economy. Italy has been uh, it's traditional. Uh, the informal economy in Italy is traditionally strong, and especially in certain sectors, and agriculture is one of uh, one of those. Um, regarding the legal framework here, I will go rather fast uh, because my colleagues are definitely going to uh, talk more about these aspects. Um, but um, in general, so Italy has um, ratified most ILO conventions with the exception of the 1949 uh, migrant work, revised Migrant Workers Convention. It is a member of UNTOC when it comes to the nexus between uh, human trafficking in general here and uh, forced labor and organized crime also uh, access the, the human trafficking and human uh, smuggling protocols. At the uh, regional level, it has signed the Council of Europe Convention on Migrant Workers, and as being a European Union member, it's also subject to its directive and regulation on the matter. But more importantly, in 2016, it, the parliament has passed a new law, uh, which updates the, context, uh, the content of Article 603 bis, of the penal code that punishes not only would directly hire the workers in an illegal uh, manner, so and, and exploit them, so the caporali, the illegal, the gang masters, um, but also who indirectly uh, benefit from from such malpractices. This means that if the executives or the owners of the enterprises of the small and medium sized uh, companies, um, even at the time of hiring such uh, such. Um, migrants didn't know uh, about these practices, they still, all, they still might face uh, imprisonment and, and fines as well. Uh, however, in my paper, I argue that what Italy has definitely missed uh, is the opportunity to look at the issue not only from a criminal law perspective, so not only just from a repression and prosecution uh, perspective, but also uh, from, a, from a prevention one, so also from a more victim-oriented perspective. And this could have been possible definitely, uh, not only, but definitely also by signing and ratifying the Convention on the Rights of the Migrants and Workers and their Families. The Convention is, in fact, most likely the only international human rights instrument which puts the migrants at the center uh, and sets minimum standard of the protection, but also promotion of their rights to, to health, for example, to housing, to education, to social inclusion, and not only to them, but also extend these rights to the members of the families, which are often um, forgotten. In this sense, I argue that, uh, at least in my paper, that uh, Italy has definitely missed an opportunity to harmonize not only its legislation, but also its general approach and hold the, the, I, would, I would say, the, the whole narrative uh, on, 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 the, on, the, on the matter, on the topic. Uh, next slide. Yeah, this is my last slide. This pretty much uh, summarizes what's uh, what's been said so far. It's, uh, it's it's in these graphs I've tried. You can see here on the left the supply uh, side, um, uh, and then on the right in red you can see the the, the demand. It this, the, and also the basis is this triangle is all the different layers of the public approach. For example, the absence of a human rights based approach, the focus on on the organized crime factor, focus on repression rather than prevention. So this is meant to depict a situation in Italy which really doesn't, uh, which is, is functioning because the system functions, but definitely to, to the detriment uh, of uh, of migrant uh, workers' rights. And this was my my last presentation. And uh, Silvia, off you go. Okay, thank you uh, very much. Um, well, uh, what I would like to share with you today is, uh, well, are actually some preliminary results 
of a uh, piece of research I'm carrying out on the links between human trafficking and organized crime in Spain um, using case law. Um, well, as you, next slide, please. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to pause it myself. Um, as you all know, concerns about human trafficking re-emerged in the 1990s in this context of increasing globalization, interdependent economic systems, and mobility across uh, borders. So in this context, human trafficking was considered part of a global process of securitization and a process that emphasized uh, this role of organized crime as a threat to international security. So um, from this moment, human trafficking has been linked to uh, organized crime, not only in criminal justice policies and legislation, like for example, the, the Palermo Protocol, which is part of the Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime, but also in criminological uh, studies. So it has been assumed that human trafficking is always committed by very complex organized criminal groups who use very violent means and obtain huge profits out of these out of um, trafficking. However, some uh, recent empirical studies have uh, beginning to have begun to question this statement, and they show that um, traffickers are usually trafficked persons relatives, friends uh, who work in small groups or individually, but not necessarily um, in this um, traditional or stereotypical organized criminal groups. Um, so basically, in my study, I would like to have a look at what's happening in Spain and answer the following two questions. So to what extent is human trafficking linked to organized crime in Spain? And what are the characteristics of uh, organized criminal groups involved in human trafficking in Spain? To do so, uh, next slide, please. Um, to do so, I basically um, used um, 55 uh, judgments, so all the judgments I, I could collect, in which at least one of the defendants was convicted of human trafficking in Spain between 2015 and 2019. Um, I have to say that all these cases were sex trafficking cases because um, the number of labor trafficking cases that reach court is very, very, very limited. Um, these 55 cases were scrutinized in order to find uh, data related to the following aspects. So the first one was the percentage of human trafficking cases in which, according to the courts, uh, OCGs were involved. And the second one were the characteristics of these groups. Um, in order to uh, systematize the analysis, I focused on four aspects which correspond to the four essential elements of the definition of human trafficking in Spain, which uh, Giada has already um, mentioned a bit. Um, an organized criminal group, according to Spanish legislation, only requires two traffickers, more than two traffickers, division of tasks, hierarchical structure, and the aim of committing crimes, in this case, human trafficking. Right, so uh, next slide, please. Um, so according to Spanish criminal law, if the person who commits human trafficking belongs or leads an organized um, criminal group, they should be punished for an aggravated form of trafficking. And this aggravated form of trafficking was applied just in 10 out of the 55 
analyzed cases, so which amounts to 18% of um, all cases. So the first idea that comes to our minds uh, when we see this is the following. Okay, uh, this is because it couldn't be proved. The courts could not demonstrate that uh, the links to organized crime. So I took into account all those cases in which uh, possible involvement of organized crime was included, even though in the end um, it could not be um, demonstrated. And the percentage is not much higher. If we have a look at the next slide, please. The percentage is not much higher. So it involves just 27% uh, of um, all cases. Regarding the characteristics of these groups, next slide, please. Um, the first aspect analyzed was uh, the composition of the criminal group. So according to the uh, information given by the, by the courts, the groups were very small. They were formed by two to six people, uh, although it is true that sometimes the courts mentioned the possibility that there were other members, but they couldn't be found, identified or, or prosecuted. Um, interestingly, they were all um, uh, migrants as well. They were people from Nigeria, Romania, Bulgaria and China. The courts often or almost always described these organized criminal groups as, as family organizations or family clans. And just one case is uh, different, which is the case of the famous Nigerian Supreme Eye Confraternity, which is the only one that fits this stereotypical image of an organized criminal group. Um, this group, according to the information provided by the uh, judges, was formed in the 1960s. It was originally a student organization and then somehow uh, grew and expanded across borders and started to engage in um, migration and crimes related to uh, migration. And they follow this stereotypical image of an organized criminal group because they had their own symbols, slogans, um, initiation rights, and they, according to the sentence, the members would call each other lords or air lords and would have a specific way of greeting each other. So more, it fits more with this stereotypical idea of um, organized crime. The second uh, characteristic, uh, next slide please, was actually the uh, division of tasks, so how the, these OCGs operate. Um, the division of tasks usually coincides with the different stages of the trafficking uh, process. Normally, the leaders of the organization or their relatives in the country of origin, because they're closer to the victims, would be the ones who are in charge of um, recruitment. These people, the, one, the relatives who are in the country of origin, are usually the ones in charge of um, transportation or accompany the victims to uh, in their um, journeys. Receipt and harboring and surveillance and control is usually performed by low-ranking members of the group who are also migrant, um, sometimes previous um, victims or victims at the moment, who live with the victims and um, well are closer to them to take their passports away and identity documents away. The third characteristic is the hierarchical structure. Um, Practically all groups represent a more or less hierarchical structure. The only one that presents a rigid hierarchical structure is this Nigerian confraternity, where according to the courts, there is a general officer commanding, which manages the whole process of um, trafficking. 
Um, according to the information provided by the courts, all generally groups leaders are convicted, although it is true that they sometimes mention the, the possibility that other leaders could not be identified and prosecuted. And finally, um, the last characteristic um, is the aim of committing crimes. Um, almost all cases, in fact, all cases by, by, uh, but one, are just involved in human trafficking for the purposes of sexual exploitation. So they do not engage in other criminal activities. It is true that some of them uh, were convicted for related crimes, such as facilitation of illegal migration, uh, forced prostitution, but uh, they are all related to human trafficking. And it is also very interesting that uh, the sentences often state that human trafficking was the perpetrator's only way of uh, making a living and that they would send all the money that they would make out of uh, trafficking and exploitation to their families back in the countries of origin. So, and this leads to the conclusions. Um, so basic, which is the last slide, please. So basically, uh, this study um, shows that the percentage of convicted or alleged trafficking cases in which organized criminal groups were involved is lower than 30%. And it, this leads to two questions that I leave open for discussion, which are uh, or two possibilities uh, or two explanations for this, which are maybe not all cases are identified and prosecuted, or another possibility is that perhaps OCG's involvement in human trafficking has been overestimated. Regarding the characteristics of the um, organized criminal groups, they do not fit this stereotypical idea of an organized criminal group. They are usually very small. Um, they don't need to uh, use violence because they are usually relatives or acquaintances of the um, victims and also between each other. They, they are, of course, coordinated by a leader because of the complexities of the trafficking process, and they are solely dedicated to human trafficking. They're not dedicated to various um, criminal activities. So overall, this leads to a final idea, which is the need to get to know trafficking perpetrators better so that anti-trafficking policies are more suited to the criminological um, reality. And that's it. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Silvia. Uh, very interesting. I have a couple of comments, especially for you. The last two two questions that that you, you left for us, I think, is very interesting. Also, from a comparative perspective, to see also the um, uh, the different approaches, also that within European Union uh, law enforcement authorities have to the to the phenomenon. But uh, without further ado, I would definitely uh, leave the floor to Sarah for our last presentation. And then after hers, we can definitely open for, for, for the debate. Well, this is part of my, my PhD research about international organized crime and sexual exploitation in Italy. I will present a brief description of the phenomenon and the legal framework in Italy to contrast it. At the end, I will put some recommendations. Okay. What are the contexts? Sexual exploitation remains a significant problem in Europe. 16% of the victims are sexually exploited, more than a half of whom are European citizens, and most of them are women. Fortunately, the fight against human trafficking can increase the vulnerability of migrants because often legitimized policies and repressive interventions trigger migrants to face jobs in conditions of clandestinity and exploitation. 
The long-standing presence in Europe has provided criminal organizations with an understanding of the mechanism of law enforcement and asylum. These situations allow us to use legal institutions for the movement of affiliates and victims. Network traffickers are showing ever higher level of professionalism and competence. Organized crime groups involved in human trafficking have established well-structured criminal networks operated internationally. Criminal organizations centering human trafficking and so home interdependent, providing everything needed for the transfer of migrants from the country of origin to the country of destination. Next slide, please. In Italy, human trafficking is a phenomenon linked to immigration, be a destination country for people who are victims of trafficking, was to the transit country to other destination in Europe. Most of the victims of trafficking destiny for Europe, and in particular to Italy, continue to come from European countries. However, the exponentially growing number of victims from Africa continent has become to the attention of the Italian authorities, especially women from Nigeria. Since 1995, Italian authorities have highlighted the increase of trafficking in person for purpose of sexual exploitation. Albanian and Nigerian criminal organizations are very active in that, showing a growing prevalence of the territory and the greater organizational capacity. On the other hand, these criminal groups collaborate with Italian criminal organizations. In some cases, the relation is a suggestion. However, they are looking for a progressive autonomy, especially in sexual exploitation. Next slide, please. So how Italy addressed this situation? Italy fights the exploitation of human beings without limiting itself to trafficking of human beings or crimes of slavery. The Italian legal framework is extensive, so I will focus the attention in some notes. At the beginning, the Constitution of the Italian Republic recognizes and guarantees in Article 2 the inviolability of human rights without distinguished people according to their status or as a citizen or migrant. Since 1950, Eight, there is a law to combat the sexual exploitation known as Merlin Law. Articles three and four of Merlin Law combat inter-prostitution and anyone who recruits or induces a person to engage in prostitution or facilitated. However, Chinese criminal groups are very active in their prostitution in Italy using the massage saloon, as well as the Nigerian criminal organization that controls connection houses in some parts of Italy. Another relevant north is the legislative decree 286. No, in Italy, in Italy it's Article 18 established a humanitarian permit for social protection reasons, considered a modern in terms of protection and support of persons involved in situation of trafficking or a serious exploitation. But not everything is protection. The decree law 113, Known as Salvini Decree, repealed the residence permit on humanitarian grounds that was recognized to most potential victims of trafficking, leaving them in a situation of irregularity. In place of human protection, the law introduced a special residence permit for victims of domestic violence or serious labor exploitation. People in urgent need of medical care, persons from a country which is a temporary situation of natural disaster, and persons who are performing acts of high civic value. Regarding the regulatory framework, it's relevant to observe all the changes introduced to the penal code in Italy. The Italian legislature 
condense the reduction or retention of in the slavery or servitude of a person referring to the state of continuous subjection to compel it to war of sexual services begging to carry out illegal activity or to submit to the removal of organs. Another relevant documents are the guidelines to the Territorial Commission for the recognition of international protection. These guidelines provide a standard operating procedure, including a step-by-step -step explanation of the process, which are indicators, practical tips on how to perform interviews and other things. And finally, the national action plans against trafficking and serious exploitation adopted in 2016. The plan is structured according to the four guidelines of the European Union, that is prevention, persecution, protection, and partnership. So the conclusions and recommendations. Although Italy legal frameworks has been recognized as advanced at the international level, its implementations have not always been sufficiently active, effective, sorry, and has attracted some criticism. In the first place, the focus on the criminal organizations and knowing the victims. Italian police authorities aim to focus in identify, identify and combating criminal organizations. This maintaining an organization dedicated to human trafficking has a greater weight than pointing to individual responsibility. However, this position leaves potential victims of trafficking unprotected. Another critic is the implementation of Article 18, the, the Testo Unico sulle Immigrazione, because in theory, it's possible to obtain a permit for social protection reasons without the victim obligation to report the traffickers. Despite this, in practice, the cooperation with the authorities is prioritized to grant the protection. So several victims remain without protection because they don't know what are the traffickers or they can identify, identify these traffickers. Another situation is the prosecution for other crimes and offered uh, trafficking human beings. Sometimes to the lack of evidence to prove human trafficking, the Italian authorities put the focus on prosecuting of other crimes, for example, reduce, reducing or keeping a person in a stability or servitude. This situation does not allow to know the real magnitude of the phenomenon. It also prevents victims of trafficking from being recognized as such, limiting the benefits to which they are entitled. So there are some recommendations. See the society as part of the phenomenon and the solution. In this sense, reduce the demand that foster all forms of exploitation related to trafficking human beings, exclusion in particular for sexual exploitation. To increase the coordination within NGOs and Italian authorities, particularly for identification of the victims, to ensuring them protection and assistance, the non-identification of the victims, a victims prevent its access to basic rights and facilities impunity. At the end, a new national plan against trafficking and serious exploitation that must, must attend the new UN strategy, particularly in regard to the identification and protection of the victim, as well as the prevention. Thank you very much. Um, I haven't seen any question in the, in the box. Uh, so in case um, anybody from the audience wants, uh, please do not hesitate. Uh, but uh, as I don't see, uh, Annie, I would definitely first ask our panelists, so Silvia, Jada, and, 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 and Sara, if you have, first of all, any questions to, to any of us. Jada? Yes, I actually have a question for Silvia. So, do you, 
I don't know if it's uh, if it's something that I can actually ask, but do you personally think the phenomenon is bigger than what you saw in uh, in Spain? Because actually, I've seen the same numbers in um, Italy, Spain, and the UK, where uh, the legisl the the end of the process where almost every 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 time um, okay, say the prosecutors acquitted, while in reality the victims knew that they were forced. Uh, to work or that they were trafficked, but because of some, um, I don't know, legal tricks, uh, like in human trafficking, if at any time you say that you don't want to uh, move, you are a, a trafficked person. So you are now migrate, you are trafficked. And uh, sometimes people can use that as a, as a trick to not being exploiters. Do you feel like it's the same uh, in the cases you you study you saw? Yeah, thank you, thank you for your question. Yeah, um, I take you referring to the whole human trafficking phenomenon, not just what the specifically focused on organized crime. Um, yes, I I definitely agree. I think uh, around Europe, we all or almost all countries have the same. Um, the same problem, like the problems to identify victims and problems to um, prosecute traffickers, but more importantly, problems to identify um, victims. Um, when it comes to uh, prosecuting traffickers, because that's uh, what you were asking, I think you were mentioning some legal tricks. I think one of the, of the possible legal tricks might be the way uh, deception is understood. Um, because some um, courts considered that to be um, to for deception to be there, you need to um, be completely wrong about what you're going to do in the country of um, origin. What I mean is, you were offered a job as a waitress, and you ended up being um, a prostitute or a sex worker. So that is um, that would be considered deception. Uh, and they do not see deception when uh, you know you are going to work, I don't know, harvesting garlic or strawberries and you know what your activity is going to be, but you were deceived about the conditions. And they say, oh, well, you knew what you uh, what you were going to do. Uh, therefore, you cannot be a victim of uh, human trafficking, even though the conditions uh, were exploitative. That's, that would be one of the reasons uh, among many others. And then the other one has to do with the um, with the way human trafficking is legally uh, constructed, because in Spanish criminal law, as in many other European legislations, it is constructed as a process towards exploitation, but not exploitation itself. So uh, very, very often uh, it is not possible to prove the whole process. So the fact that they were recruited, they uh, were moved to other place, and what you can prove is just exploitation. And when you can just prove exploitation, you don't apply human trafficking, you apply another crime. Uh, and as you uh, know, in Spain, we don't have uh, a crime of forced labor. Um, and slavery, just if it if it's in the context of a of a war, so uh, that's why there aren't that many human trafficking cases because you use other um, crimes instead. Thank you very much, Sarah. You. Do you you so you you muted yourself? Yes, no. It's it's very very interesting. 
the, the things that Silvia noted, because in Italy, it's something like that, because you can prove all the process, you can prove that you were trafficked, but what are the name of the traffickers? Is this an organization or not? So when you arrive here, it is very complicated for these victims or potential victims. And the end, the Italian authorities use another, another article of the penal code as a slavery or yes, uh, the exploitation, but it's not human trafficking. That is, for that reason, you can see all the magnitude of the phenomenon in reality, because when you see the figures, it's not so huge. Can I add one last thing, if that's okay? Please. So the Palermo Protocol provides with three facts, means, purpose, and, um, and action. But it's really interesting, if I remember correctly, because I'm, but it's interesting because in the United Kingdom uh, um, referral mechanism, the means is not included. So you don't need to have a mean to be uh, um, I say, a victim of modern slavery, of human traffic or forced labor. So that change on definition is what really is uh, flabbergasting me about everything, because uh, you just need to change a, a comma and you change the the view completely the view of how you see the victim but even in the um, british uh, legislation sometimes the victims are uh, prosecuted and i just study a case where uh, to south southeastern i think uh, um, forced labor they were uh, working in a cannabis uh, farm and they have been prosecuted for a longer term than the two British people that were actually keeping them uh, working there in uh, incredible, uh, awful conditions. So even if uh, the legislation provides you with all the tools, uh, sometimes it's really interesting to see how they're not used or they're misused. So, yeah. Um, we have a question from the chat. So Joanna writes that she's be, she would be interested in knowing if any of us know um, how law enforcement authorities investigations work in the EU uh, between the countries of origin and country of destination. I would uh, partially uh, try to address this question and then, of course, I would leave it to, to especially the, the, the three of you. Um, of course, at the international level and the EU level, UNTOC definitely... Um, works as a platform for exchange and cooperate international cooperation on matters of uh, uh, international of, on, regarding the mandate of course of the convention but also uh, what has, I have been observing uh, lately especially uh, when it comes to certain matters uh, what is essential um, is uh, the enrichment of bilateral agreements between states this is something that of course the UNTOC is general it is a platform it works but when it comes to specific cases, specific dynamics, such as, for example, human trafficking from specific West African countries, like in, say, Nigeria, Edo State, especially Nigeria, going to Italy, it is essential that Italian law enforcement have at least MOU with local authorities of the country of origin. So at the legal level, this is definitely important. Speaking of experience, in another uh, important, uh, because I, as I said before, I work for the Southeast Europe Observatory of GTOC. Um, covering mostly the Western Balkan six. Uh, when it comes to, for example, the drugs market, it's very unrelated, but gives still an idea. It is essential, for example, in the fight against uh, cannabis cultivation, especially in cannabis traffic between Albania and, and Italy, that Italy has a very strong collaboration, not only with law enforcement authorities from Albania, but also from other actors, meaning also collaborations at the civil society level. So it is the whole 
apparatus that has to move in a way to meet uh, the other side, the other side needs. And this can be done legally speaking only, only through uh, bilateral uh, international agreements. Uh, okay, we have another question. Um, I think this is more for Jada and, and myself. What, what do we think businesses themselves, so the companies, could do to prevent labor exploitation uh, in agriculture? So from my side, uh, there is um loss has been done. So there is a modern slavery act in the UK and all the big companies have to provide with um, with what they do in order to prevent this, but it's really hard. So if we think about uh, Sainsbury's, Amazon, all big corporations, it's clear that they cannot control every single step of the, of the supply chain, especially when we all know the agriculture is um, it's not highly mechanized, so and you have so many gray areas in agriculture where you can force people to to work for fifteen hours a day for five euro. So I think it's more like a local kind of control. So in the cocoa uh, supply chain, so much has been done, and you can actually almost track every single step, even if there is there's um, there is a need of improvement, of course. But I think that's the solution. So involve farmers, because like I said in the presentation, so many times they really think local and they only see their little garden. They don't see the the other steps. I think that's what we can do. So work on a, on a local base. And uh, yeah. I... Just, just I second totally that, and also to add on 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 your on your point, uh, especially in the Italian context, as you said, and also in the presentation I said before, the, the the entrepreneurial fabric of Italy is very uh, is mostly, if not totally, uh, composed by small and medium sized enterprises. We are talking about family run businesses, um, and given also the hard times that, uh, that they always say that they live, um, it is very important, at least from my very perspective, to sort of like incentivize this. And uh, given that we are talking about businesses, I believe um, that it is very important to sort of like, for at least for the institutions, to show the fact that, or at least try to come up with a system that... Uh, from which small and medium-sized enterprises can economically benefit from. It is very important to, to give uh, small and medium-sized, the owners, executives, uh, white calls or the owners, and under the understanding that if you don't exploit, you benefit because it is more taxes, it is less, it is less, more revenues and less taxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for the whole system, of course. It is very hard though to, because it's not, it's not in the short term, it's definitely not uh, an easy task. But I would say that the economic uh, component, given that we're talking about businesses, it's always central. Um, it's always central because you cannot go to the business and say, oh, you shouldn't do this because you violate the right of these people. It's uh, because they will always have another answer to that. They say, no, actually, with him is different. I treat him in this way. It's okay. This is still because he likes what he do, what he does, etc., etc., etc. So these are uh, some of the aspects that I would definitely keep into consideration when uh, when addressing uh, at least possible local-oriented solution. Yeah, definitely. 
uh, we don't, yeah, this, we just have uh, 14 minutes now. Uh, if it's okay, I would like to ask a question to, um, to Jada. Um, you were um, you were uh, talking about I don't know the nationality, but anyways, there was a farmer that you reached out and and, and he said uh, that he wasn't really willing to 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 talk to you. Um, and then you were also also because of COVID, you were also trying to find alternatives uh, alternative ways to conduct your research. And my question is, given the high level of uh, informality. Of, of the networks as well, social networks uh, in general. I was, uh, my, my question, my, my suggestion rather than question is, have you tried with um, community leaders of certain, uh, of certain communities? So, and, and then my question related to that is uh, how much is it important to establish this sort of like communication channel with people that matters? It can be the, 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 the imam, it can be the also like spiritual or whatever uh, community leaders in uh, in general. So I I didn't imagine the PR would have been a task on my research, but you are absolutely right. And um, also after researching, uh, I saw how many religious organizations work with um, forced labor and uh, immigrants because of course the um, a case in the UK a person was. Um, working in a house as a cleaner, and the only way for her to go out was to go to church. So the, the priest was the, the one that discovered that case of uh, slavery. So working with uh, religious um, I don't, imam, priest, uh, authorities in general is really important. But at the same time, even if I establish so far contact with, um, with them, then it's really hard to do the next step. So to have... Um, an interview or even just a chat with someone that had experience on that because they are always scared, scared of uh, repercussions, scared of their name being published. So it's uh, it's really, really hard. And uh, in Scotland, I had a meeting with uh, priests that just help people from Nigeria. They were uh, um, moved to the north of Scotland to work with uh, with the oil companies, and actually they were also in that case just used to other kind of uh, of works. But even in that case, so far from home, no connections whatsoever. They were not willing to talk to me. So yeah, I think in my case, my methodology will have to improve this next step in order to have some real voices. That's what I really want to don't just study previous researches like I'm doing right now for because of the legislation, but to have real voices and uh, in order to prove real improvements. So yeah, I think I just need to understand how to do the next step. That I think is the same uh, when you work with um, people that are sexual um, workers. I think it's the same. Uh, how do you do that, if I can ask? How can you engage with them? Sara, sorry, I, it's like I took it for granted. It, the answer, but it's very, it's very complicated. Yes, because it's a, a traumatic situation. All, not only for the sexual exploitation. In fact, I, I study the, the Nigerian community here in Naples, in in Campania, and it's complicated for the people that beg in the street and everything because they don't want to talk about the experience. So it's very complicated. You have to create this relation 
that it took months, almost years. <laughs> In fact, uh, for my PhD research, uh, will be a very hard <laughs> part of the, my research because when I I I answered something, so I when I made some questions about, for example, the affiliation rituals, the juju, and things. Almost the people is like, oh, I don't want to talk about that at the beginning. Put like a wall or change the subject. Is so yes, you have to work like I say day after day or month, yes, to give uh, an answer. But we have to do it because it's the it's the the unique. For to, to understand all the phenomena. Um, I have actually still another question for Sarah. You, at the very end of the presentation, you um, uh, one of the recommendations is reduce the demand. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't know uh, how you mean it. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have statistics. Also, I don't have numbers in terms of how many. Uh, Italians, for example, in this in our case, um, go and 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 and, and, and uses sexual services. But then my question in this sense would be, uh, and also if there is also any uh, data in terms of uh, age, um, gender, and in terms of also nationality of the sexual workers uh, which are preferred. Um, these are all data which is super interesting. But anyways, my question is, uh, do you believe that the legalization of, of sex work would, would, would help in that sense, uh, adopting the German-Austrian model? Uh, do you believe that taxation would help in that sense? Also, in a way, because, you know, we, we, you know Italy, of course, and uh, it, it, it's very taboo. Uh, to open up about this discussion in terms with the public, the presence of the Vatican, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, would you consider this as an option in order to reduce the demand, or at least to not to reduce, but at least to regulate it? Yes, thank you for for your question. It, it's very complicated, yes, because Italy have this this taboo that they don't want to talk about this. But when you see all the reports of the for example, the, the national direction uh, about international crime and all the all, all the reports about that is very it's very hard to believe. The age of the of the sexual exploitation girls is year reduced. They are basically teenagers. The most of the victims are, are teenagers. Time when I write to Italy, the people to to pay for these sex uh, are black, are sorry, are white men, are younger, there are not teenagers, but in 20s to 60s years, it's something like that. Uh, and if I believe that to regulate the prostitution in Italy could, uh, could help with this one, I don't know because uh, some statistics said that, for example, the models that used, for example, in Sweden to punish the, the people who buy the, the sex, basically, is not so good because at the end, 
you don't reduce the demand. You only like put it in a in in a closed place. Um, the legalization legalization of the prostitution is very complicated here, not only for the situation in the religion situation, only for the part of the feminism, because at the end, prostitution is considered uh, a form of exploitation from the, mas the masculine society, you know? So uh, I don't think it will, will be helped. I think it's better to work with the society to create, not, not only for the sexual exploitation, for exploitation in general, you have to, you have to put the attention in the society to understand the phenomenon. You have to educate the population to understand that these girls are not here for the for the voluntary and don't do, do this for that. I think it's better work in that in the in that direction and not to legalize the prostitution. It would be my my answer. Thank you very much. We still have uh, four minutes, so three and a half. Um, we have a question. Um, if one second here, so if we have data on child on children trafficking in Europe, if it's common as a, as a common other other types of trafficking in person, uh, I would definitely suggest you. I'm gonna now share in the chat box uh, the link to a report that uh, I have co-authored for the Global Initiative, uh, the, our Southeast Europe Observatory um on children and in general juvenile commercial sexual exploitation in the western balkan 6 we have collected data uh, for the western balkan 6 although uh, we and also taking into consideration minorities so especially roma community uh, but also children on the move uh, especially afghani and uh, yeah mostly afghani uh, kids in, in migration reception centers across the Western Balkans. I'm gonna now uh, share the the with the, the, the link in the in the chat. You can definitely have a look. It is uh, interesting because it not only explores the phenomenon, but it also uh, in a way analyzes the legal responses to it. And uh, I encourage you uh, to also have a look at that. I personally do. We didn't uh, have uh, any data specific, uh, specifically on uh, European Union, but we have, for example, uh, highlighted a few cases um, on, uh, on on Western Balkan uh, networks, especially from Bosnia in in Western in Western Europe when it came to juvenile and especially the the human trafficking of young Romanian and Bosnian women uh, to Paris. Uh, it, it was a very well-functioning uh, criminal network, which was dismantled by an operation led by uh, Europol, Bosnian, French, and the German authorities. Um, I can see, so one last question. If I see in Italy or Spain emerging of human smuggling and trafficking, uh, this is definitely a big, a big question. There, is, there, are, there are certain instances, of course, of, uh, I would say, merging. Uh, when it comes to, for example, the central Mediterranean route. Um, but we definitely do not have time, I'm sorry, because it's a very, it's a very interesting question, because also from a legal perspective, I see uh, Silvia that <laughs> keeps saying yes. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I would definitely um, ask you uh, to, if you're interested in exploring this, um, uh, this, 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 these topics with any of us, 
please reach out also bilaterally and privately. You have in the in the web page uh, of the of the OC24 in our panel specifically. We have you have access to our contacts if uh, you have shared us. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, we should we should be we should all be able to to reach us in case you have other further questions to ask us. And it is one minute to the end. I would thank uh, very much Silvia, Jada, and Sara. If you want to have a final word and uh, and for my side, it's all. Just thank you because it was really, really interesting. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. And uh, of course, thank you to everyone who was listening. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope you will enjoy the rest of the conference with other panels. I'm sure there is lots of insights from other uh, sessions. And I will wrap it up now. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.